Welcome to Hub History, where I go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share my favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 141, Annexation and Perambulation. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be sharing clips from two classic Hub History episodes that are all about the boundaries of the city of Boston. First, we'll go back to a show that originally aired last January, and we'll learn why independent towns like Roxbury, Dorchester, and Charlestown were so eager to be annexed into the city of Boston in the mid to late 19th century. We'll also examine why Boston hasn't annexed any other municipalities since Hyde Park in 1912. Of course, once you make the boundaries of the city bigger by annexing your neighbors, you have to keep track of those new boundaries. So our second clip will be from a show that aired way back in September of 2017, about the ancient practice of perambulating the bounds. Since the 1650s, Massachusetts laws required towns to clearly mark their boundaries with other towns, and to send somebody out to walk the line and examine the markers every five years. But before we hear those classic stories, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and my upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is an article written last summer by Adam Gaffin for his local news site Universal Hub. Under the title Stony Brook, Boston's Stygian River, he wrote an in-depth description of how an 1886 flood inspired the city to bury the Stony Brook. The mid-sized river originates in the high ground where West Roxbury, Hyde Park, and Roslindale all come together, and it once wound its way through Roxbury until it drained into the muddy river near its confluence with the Charles. The brook was so clean and clear that a series of breweries were founded in Roxbury to make beer with its delicious water. Eventually, however, too many factories discharged their waste into the river, and it became polluted. As the watershed became heavily populated and industrialized, the Stony Brook's annual floods could no longer be tolerated. Using many wonderful historic maps and photos, Gaffin's article describes, quote, a decades-long project to create Boston's underground river, a seven-and-a-half-mile waterway on which the sun never shines. Throw in all the marshes that were filled and the tributaries that were also covered, and you end up with a project to rival the creation of the Back Bay one that affected hundreds of acres of land from Hyde Park to the Charles River. He follows the historic route of the brook, describes the construction techniques used to build the massive-scale tunnels that now carry it, and takes the reader on a virtual tour showing how to trace the route of the current underground river. The article hits a sweet spot between urban infrastructure and Boston history, and it sits well with this week's theme of 19th century development and expansion. We'll have a link in this week's show notes. And for the upcoming event this week, I'm featuring a special 30th anniversary screening of the movie Glory. When it was released in the summer of 1989, Glory became an instant hit and a critical darling, winning three Oscars and a host of other awards. The movie is a Civil War epic which focuses on the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry Regiment, which we've mentioned on the podcast many times. Starring Morgan Freeman, Denzel Washington, and Matthew Broderick, the film follows the all-black regiment and their white officers from their training in Reedville, the neighborhood where I live, to the battlefield at Fort Wagner, South Carolina. Roger Ebert's 1990 review summarizes the plot and one of the film's major criticisms quite nicely. Glory tells the story of the 54th Regiment largely through the eyes of Robert Gould Shaw, who in an early scene in the film is seen horrified and disoriented by the violence of the battlefield. Returned home to recover from wounds, he's recruited to lead a newly formed black regiment, 
and takes the job even though his enlightened abolitionist opinions still leave room for doubts about the capability of black troops. It's up to the troops themselves to convince him they can fight. And along the way, they also gently provide him with some insights into race and into human nature, a century before the flowering of the civil rights movement. Among the men who turn into natural leaders of the 54th are Tripp, Denzel Washington, an escaped slave, and John Rawlins, Morgan Freeman, who's first seen in the film as a gravedigger who encounters the wounded Shaw on the field of battle. These men are proud to be soldiers, proud to wear the uniform, and also too proud to accept the racism they see all around them, as when a decision is made to play black troops less than white. Blacks march as far, bleed as much, and die as soon, they argue. Why should they be paid less for the same work? Shaw and his second-in-command, Cabot Forbes, eventually see the logic in this argument and join their men in refusing their paychecks. That action is a turning point for the 54th, fusing the officers and men together into a unit with mutual trust. And everything in the film leads up to the final bloody battle scene, a suicidal march up a hill that accomplishes little in concrete military terms, but is of incalculable symbolic importance. Watching Glory, I had one recurring problem. I didn't understand why it had to be told so often from the point of view of the 54th's white commanding officer. Why did we see the black troops through his eyes instead of seeing him through theirs? To put it another way, why does the top billing in this movie go to a white actor? I ask, not to be perverse, but because I consider this primarily a story about a black experience and do not know why it has to be seen largely through white eyes. On July 21st and 24th, which are a Sunday and a Wednesday, the film will be screened at a handful of area theaters. It'll be shown in the Fenway and in Framingham, Revere, and Somerville. There are only two days of screenings, and there's only a single showtime in some of the towns, so you probably want to reserve tickets in advance. We'll have a link to the event page where you can buy tickets for any of the available screenings in this week's show notes. Before I continue with the show, I want to pause and say thank you to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. Your support means we can do things like subscribing to the Boston Globe archives, and several recent episodes like Hooker Day, the Meg's Monorail, and the Fog Museum heist wouldn't have been nearly as thorough without that old news coverage. With your continuing support, there are other research databases we'd like to subscribe to. Plus, we've had a few listeners ask why they can't find Hub History on Spotify. Well, our current podcast feed host doesn't play nicely with Spotify. But if we get a few more sponsors, we may be able to switch to another host that does. If you'd like to help us reach those goals, you can support us for as little as $2 a month. To learn about our Amelia Earhart, Lewis Hayden, and Abigail Adams levels of support, go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks in advance. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Our first story focuses on an important era in Boston's history. In the latter half of the 19th century, Boston transformed itself from a town on a tiny peninsula to a sprawling city. In part, this was due to landmaking in the Back Bay and in South Boston, but the city gained a great amount of area by annexing its neighbors. The first was Roxbury, which joined the city of Boston on January 1st, 1868. Dorchester, Brighton, West Roxbury, and Charlestown would follow quickly. Hyde Park would join eventually, but other towns, like Cambridge and Brookline, would not do so. In the middle of the 19th century, there were two changes in Boston that led to a sort of suburban flight, 
similar to the white flight many cities witnessed after World War II. One was demographic and the other was technological. It's hard to understate how different Boston looked before the 1840s. It was a small, densely populated city on a tiny, mitten-shaped peninsula. It was relatively homogenous, with a population that was mostly English-descended, fairly well-off, and almost universally Protestant. It was the old Yankee ideal. When the potato famine began in 1845, an enormous wave of Irish immigration washed over Boston, like most other East Coast cities. By the time of the 1850 census, Irish immigrants and their children made up about 60,000 out of Boston's population of 135,000. At the same time, railroads were being introduced throughout the region. In 1835, the first regional rail lines connected Boston with Worcester, Providence, and Lowell. And over the coming decades, the network filled in to include many smaller towns. Railroads offered commuted fares to short-distance passengers with no luggage, leading to the rise of the term commuter. By the 1850s, a web of horse-drawn streetcar tracks connected Boston to the surrounding towns. For the first time, it was easy to keep a business in Boston, but make your home in another community. Because Yankee Boston held the new Irish-American residents of their city with utter disdain, the suburbs began to look increasingly attractive. Well into the latter half of the 19th century, many of the towns immediately surrounding Boston maintained a more rural character. On the one hand, moving from the hustle-bustle of Boston to the leafy quiet of Brookline or Roxbury could be a relief for a family worried about the corrupting influence of their Irish neighbors. On the other hand, learning that your new hometown had muddy dirt streets, outhouses, and lacked an adequate supply of clean drinking water could be quite a rude surprise for a proper Yankee family. As Lawrence Kennedy said in his book, Planning the City Upon a Hill, no sooner did people move to the suburbs than they wanted to make the suburbs part of the city. Suburban voters wanted the city to provide services, but the city was at times reluctant to accept new expenses. Roxbury was the first city to petition to be allowed to join itself to the city of Boston. The state legislature took up their request in 1852, hearing arguments from both sides. The case laid out by supporters of annexation focused on the infrastructure benefits for Roxbury, saying that there is wanted an abundant supply of pure water without great cost, that in the upper part of the town we have to penetrate the rocks, and in the lower part it was impossible at any price to obtain pure water, that attempts to obtain artesian wells are abandoned that we want common sewers, and that in order to drain Roxbury, we must connect with the sewers of Boston, that we want better streets, the present condition of our streets is not good, that sidewalks are wanted, a general system, the Boston system, to compel persons to make sidewalks. Opponents framed the debate as Big Bad Boston rapaciously plundering its smaller neighbor, arguing that Boston wants to add to her commercial importance that Boston wants to increase the number of her citizens who will take and pay for the constituent water, and that we shall pay her a large tax for her water, that Boston wants our public property, that Boston wants us to pay our share of her public debt, that by uniting with Boston, we may make a successful effort to save the capital of our state from falling under the control of foreigners, that we are opposed by the city officers, 
by the bank, or by money power, by those who have peculiar private interests, by honest-minded men who have been misled, and by disinterested and fair-minded men who fear all change. The legislature heard arguments from both sides, but in the end, decided they couldn't be sure that the request to join Boston was fully supported by the residents of both cities, and in the end, they asked the Roxbury Committee to withdraw their petition. As you might have guessed from the fact that, spoiler alert, Roxbury is now a neighborhood in the city of Boston, this wasn't the last time the legislature heard arguments on the matter of annexing Roxbury to Boston. Bills to that effect were introduced in 1859, 1860, and 1865, but none of them got enough support to pass both houses. In 1866, the cities of Boston and Roxbury formed a joint commission to study the prospect of annexation. Their February 1867 final report said, We are led by our investigation of this subject to the conviction that immediate annexation is equally important to Boston and Roxbury. We are satisfied that in all material respects, the two communities are nearly equal in the advantages which each offers to the other, and we believe that the welfare of both will be greatly promoted by the early consummation of annexation. Reading that, and seeing the cooperation between the communities, the legislature nearly passed a bill that May immediately absorbing Roxbury into Boston, but it was vetoed at the last minute by Governor Bullock. Do you ever wonder why the ceremony and parade celebrating Evacuation Day when the British left Boston, is held in South Boston. Every elementary school student knows that the cannons Henry Knox brought from Fort Ticonderoga were installed at Dorchester Heights, but today, Dorchester Heights is a part of South Boston. As the name suggests, Dorchester Heights was part of Dorchester Neck, which was, in turn, originally part of the independent town of Dorchester. From the time of settlement to the beginning of the 1800s, Dorchester Neck was sparsely populated. In 1800, there were 10 families living on the peninsula, and in 1803, a rumor started circulating that they had all sold their land to a West Indian planter who wanted to move to Boston. Soon, the truth was revealed. All 10 families had sold their farms to a syndicate of real estate speculators led by Harrison Gray Otis. Otis was the 1803 equivalent of a billionaire, and he was a prominent member of the Federalist Party. He was a former U.S. attorney and member of the state legislature, and he would eventually go on to become the Boston mayor and a U.S. senator. He used his political connections to convince the state legislature to pass legislation in 1804 ceding Dorchester Neck to Boston, without asking the people of either town and without providing any sort of compensation to Dorchester. Otis and his partners built a bridge connecting Dorchester Neck to downtown Boston, renamed it South Boston, and immediately proceeded to subdivide and sell the land, making a bundle of money. This time, the legislature was going to make sure that there was no appearance of malfeasance. The bill was resubmitted with an amendment requiring a majority of voters in both cities to approve of annexation before it could move forward. It guarded against annexation, as one history of the city puts it, without consulting the people of a municipality, which had had a corporate existence for 237 years, as to their willingness to be absorbed by their greater neighbor, nor those of the city of Boston, who might be decidedly averse to undertaking jurisdiction over new territory and to assuming the Roxbury debt. 
This version of the bill passed through both houses and was signed by the governor within a few hours of being submitted. Now it was up to the voters. On September 9, 1867, both cities went to the polls and voted for annexation in a landslide. Every ward of both cities approved of the measure. The residents of Roxbury voted in the affirmative by a 3-to-1 margin, and Boston went for annexation by over 4-to-1. The measure went into effect the next year, and on January 6, 1868, 150 years ago this Saturday, the independent city of Roxbury ceased to exist. While the debate over annexing Roxbury dragged on, Boston was expanding in other ways. Harrison Gray Otis and his partners had subdivided South Boston. As we heard in a recent episode, the city had filled in the mill pond that used to divide the north and west ends and built a new neighborhood. And starting in 1858, work began on an ambitious new project to fill the tidal back bay and create a large, planned neighborhood that would itself double the original size of the Shawmut Peninsula. This seemingly inexorable progress created in the minds of the people and government of Boston what author Stephen Puleo calls a sense of municipal entitlement, what one might call a sense of urban manifest destiny. Just a year after Roxbury joined the city, the Cosituate standpipe was built atop Fort Hill. Its gleaming white walls, pitched green roof, and ample supply of clean water stood as a monument to the march of progress and the expansion of Boston that was visible from the surrounding communities. However, not everyone shared that sense of optimism about the growth of Boston through annexation. As Roxbury became more urban and industrialized, in fact more like Boston, the portion of that city that was still rural and wished to remain that way rebelled. The people of what was then called Upper Roxbury, today the neighborhoods of Jamaica Plain, Roslindale, and West Roxbury, petitioned the state legislature to allow them to separate from Roxbury and to return to a town government instead of continuing as a city. In a committee report, their representatives said, Here is an abundant territory for a large town of a rural description. Beautiful sites for country residences and farming, containing 3,000 inhabitants, who nearly all desire a separation, who are entirely competent, and wish to govern themselves, their social feelings and sympathies being in a different direction. In the book Eden on the Charles, Michael Rawson describes the residents of Upper Roxbury as the industrialists who built the factories the real estate speculators who owned the slums, the bankers who financed a new development, and sometimes the clerks who kept the whole system running. Ironic, then, that they wished to separate from the city of Roxbury because it was becoming too industrial, too densely populated, and too full of the new immigrants who were flocking to Boston. In an honest moment, perhaps too honest, one of their representatives said that the people of Upper Roxbury wish to get rid of the lower portion on account of the pauper population. In the end, they were successful, and the new town of West Roxbury was set off from Roxbury in 1851, just as the annexation debate was beginning to heat up. It was just one in a series of partitions between rapidly urbanizing cities and their rural fringes. Somerville was split off from Charlestown, then Revere separated from Chelsea, and Swampscott and Nahant both broke from Lynn. However, this fragmentation was the exception, not the rule. To quote Rawson again, Cities across America would feed their growth throughout the 19th century by annexing their rural neighbors. Annexation provided a way to recapture the wealth of former residents who had moved to surrounding communities, and it enabled cities to control areas that would someday house a portion of their populations. 
Some cities, like Detroit, nibbled slowly at their countrysides over many years. Others, like Chicago, Philadelphia, and New York, swallowed enormous areas with a single bite. But all large cities grew larger through annexation. That sense of urban manifest destiny was certainly on display when, less than a year after the annexation of Roxbury, the Boston City Council created a commission to study the idea of annexing the town of Dorchester in December of 1868. Unsurprisingly, given the triumphant attitude in Boston at the time, they concluded in early 1869, The importance of retaining the industrial classes of our community within the city limits cannot be overestimated. An industrious, intelligent mechanic who has a family and is laboring to place his children in a better position than he has been able to attain is a most valuable man in any community. To retain such men, we must be able to give them land at moderate prices. They will always remain in the city if they can live as cheaply and comfortably as elsewhere, not only because the interests of their labor are here, but because of its better facilities of education, recreation, libraries, and other advantages which the metropolis affords. As far as the commission was concerned, the benefits to the city of Boston were clear. There were benefits in improving the harbor, in improving the street grid, in establishing new parks and cemeteries. But most of all, there were benefits to be had in demographics. Timely provision should be made for the acquisition of territory of large capacity, bordering closely upon the city, in the direction of movement of population, best adapted to our existing system of water distribution, drainage, etc., a territory which we shall have the power to shape at small expense for the healthful occupation of our increasing population. Dorchester seems to your commissioners to present these important requisites. This pitch didn't necessarily go over so well in Dorchester itself. Dorchester had a history just as long as Boston's, with both towns being founded in 1630. In 1869, the city of Dorchester was the second most populous municipality in the state, with almost as many residents as Boston. One opponent of annexation announced at a rally that the laboring men of Dorchester were a higher class than those of Boston, and another, feeding off the widespread resentment of Yankee New England toward recent immigrants, went as far as saying that the Irish of Boston would not make very desirable neighbors. After a very contentious debate on the topic, the question of annexation was put to a vote on June 4, 1869. The measure was wildly popular in Boston, passing with a 6-to-1 margin. In Dorchester, however, it came right down to the wire. In the end, annexation prevailed, but the measure only passed by a mere 202 votes. On January 3, 1870, the independent city of Dorchester was officially absorbed by the city of Boston, nearly doubling the size of the already combined Boston and Roxbury, and completely dwarfing the original landmass of the Shawmut Peninsula, where Boston began. As we've heard the movement toward annexation had two major motivations. The old Yankee power base wanted to maintain control over a population that was increasingly made up of Catholic Irish immigrants. And the suburban towns surrounding Boston were scrambling to provide basic services for their growing populations. Boston now had access to the clean, plentiful water provided by the Cassituate Reservoir in Natick. We had a sophisticated sewer system, and planning was underway for a major upgrade called the Main Drain that would unite all of the city's sewage lines and send our waste out into the harbor on the outgoing tide. And we had the Emerald Necklace system of parks. Our suburban neighbors looked on the city's advances jealously, but seemed powerless to institute such improvements themselves. 
The Cassituate Reservoir and Aqueduct had been completed at tremendous expense, supported by the large tax base of the city. The main drain and the existing sewage system took a similar outlay of resources, while the public park system demanded a strong centralized planning authority. The towns surrounding Boston didn't have all the same advantages. Some, like West Roxbury, were quite wealthy, but lacked access to the natural resources it would have taken to implement a central water or sewer system. Others, like Charlestown, had access to the Mystic River for water and the harbor for disposing of sewage, but had no money with which to make improvements taking advantage of these resources. And all of the suburban towns suffered from a lack of central planning. At the time, there was no sense of wider metropolitan planning and development, so the only access to these resources was at the city level. Recognizing the growing need for broad, coordinated planning efforts between the urbanizing towns in Greater Boston, a state senator named J.S. Potter from Arlington introduced a bill in 1872 that would have annexed 15 surrounding cities and towns to Boston. He argued that this was necessary both to improve the quality of life in these smaller municipalities by providing public services, but also to ensure that the rural character of these outlying areas would maintain the moral fiber of the growing city. Wherever a family has a grapevine or owns and cultivates a flower bed, there a voter is sure to be found who cannot be properly enumerated among those who belong to what are termed the dangerous classes, he said. The legislature entertained the measure, but in the end, they set goals that were not quite so lofty. Rather than 15 cities and towns, the bill that passed through committee proposed annexing four of Boston's immediate neighbors, Brighton, Brookline, West Roxbury, and Charlestown. All of them had earlier split off from other towns, Brighton from Cambridge, West Roxbury from Roxbury, Charlestown from Somerville, and Brookline from Boston itself in 1705. The annexation debate would play out in very different ways in these different towns. Charlestown and West Roxbury were in desperate need of the city services Boston could provide. West Roxbury had shed much of the rural chauvinism that had driven it to separate from Roxbury, while Charlestown had gone as far as electing a mayor who campaigned on an explicitly pro-annexation platform. Brighton and Brookline were each situated somewhat differently. Brighton's main industry at that time was livestock and meat. For reasons that we'll explore in another episode one of these days, it was our own little Wild West, with stockyards, drovers, saloons, and regular cattle drives through the streets. Starting in the early 1870s, the local livestock market took a sudden nosedive. On the one hand, the refrigerated train car had just been invented, making it much more economical to slaughter cows and pack meat nearer to the ranches of the Midwest. And on the other hand, the state had gotten sick of Brighton's meat industry acting as a bad neighbor to the surrounding communities. The stockyards were full of manure, while the slaughterhouses discharged a foul stench into the air and a disgusting mix of offal into the Charles River. A new state board of health stepped in and shut down many of the slaughterhouses and forced others to consolidate. This left a town with a cleaner reputation, with large tracts of land suddenly available for development. Brookline in the same era had maintained the rural, wealthy sensibilities that the founders of West Roxbury had hoped to instill. At this time, it claimed to be the wealthiest town in Massachusetts, with gently winding lanes connecting the town's large estates and their manor houses. 
Having read the writing on the wall when the annexation debate started in the early 1850s, the town of Brookline worked furiously to provide the public services on its own that were driving other towns into the welcoming arms of Boston. It already had omnibus service, a branch railroad, and a growing street railway network to serve the commuter class who called the town home. By the end of the 1850s, according to Rawson, Brookline had one of the best school systems and public libraries outside of Boston, and gaslights illuminated the streets of its most settled areas. By the 1870s, the town had established a full-time police force, completed its own waterworks, and begun a large-scale system of sewers. It even enjoyed limited telephone service. An election was held to decide the fate of these four towns on October 7, 1873. As an article published in the Boston Pilot three days before the election makes clear, success was widely predicted. Judging from the opinions of the press of Boston and vicinity, the annexation of Brighton, Brookline, Charlestown, and West Roxbury is looked upon as inevitable. The voters of Boston approved all four annexations. Charlestown and West Roxbury passed theirs, and in Brighton, more than 80% voted in favor of annexation. However, in Brookline, the measure failed. Voters turned out against it by a measure of more than 4 to 1 against. At the insistence of the legislature, Brookline went back to the polls to defeat annexation in 1875 and again in 1876. It hadn't been a fluke or a misunderstanding. The town of Brookline was not interested in joining Boston. The arguments that Brookline needed to join Boston to receive public services had fallen on deaf ears. Nobody knew it at the time, but Brookline's rejection of annexation would prove to be the high watermark of urban consolidation nationally. Kenneth Jackson says in the book Crabgrass Frontier, After Brookline spurned Boston, virtually every other eastern and middle western city was rebuffed by wealthy and independent suburbs. Chicago by Oak Park and Evanston, Rochester by Brighton and Irondequot, or however you pronounce that lovely city, and Oakland by the rest of Alameda County. Brighton, West Roxbury, and Charlestown joined the city on New Year's Day, 1874. The idea of annexation would never go away entirely, but it would basically be taken off the table for the next 40 years. In the meantime, the problem of public services began to be tackled at a regional level lessening the need for suburbs to join themselves to the city of Boston in order to get access to resources and centralized planning. The legislature created a new body called the Metropolitan Sewage Commission in 1889 to manage drainage across Boston and its suburbs. In 1893, they created a Metropolitan Parks Commission to do the same thing with parklands, beginning with the Middlesex Fells and the Blue Hills. And finally, in 1895, the Metropolitan Water Board began extending municipal water supplies to communities as much as 10 miles outside of Boston. So by the end of the 19th century, the problems of freshwater, open space, and sanitary sewers were being dealt with on a regional basis rather than driving independent towns to annex themselves to Boston. Still, the dream of a city encompassing the entire region didn't go away. For a time, the Yankee Republican Party pushed for consolidation in hopes that their suburban voting power would outweigh the immigrant Irish Democrats in the city, giving control of Boston back to the Brahmin class. Years later, 
when it was clear that the balance of power had shifted firmly in the other direction, Mayor Honey Fitz Fitzgerald, JFK's grandfather, pushed a plan for urban consolidation starting in 1905. Under the moniker Boston 1915, it argued that 40 towns should be annexed, from Salem to Cohasset, and almost as far west as Worcester. While city and state politicians were arguing about the Boston 1915 plan, a more modest proposal passed the legislature. Rather than having been initiated by political bosses in Boston, or dreamed up by urban planning fanatics in the state legislature, this one was championed by the people of the town that would be annexed. In episode 59 about the Motherbrook, we talked a little bit about how Hyde Park was created in 1868 out of pieces of Dorchester, Milton, and Dedham. With abundant water power provided by the Motherbrook and the Neponset River, it quickly became a manufacturing center. The population grew from 1,500 to 15,000 in the 25 years leading up to annexation, as Italian, Irish, and Jewish immigrants streamed in to work in the mills. In his book Planning the City Upon a Hill, Lawrence Kennedy describes the debate within Hyde Park over annexation. Robert Bleakey, owner of a local woolen mill, led the movement for annexation. His supporters were mainly immigrants. Opposition came from the Yankee population. Longtime Hyde Park residents recall the split taking form along religious as well as ethnic lines, since the Protestant churches opposed joining Boston, while the Catholic church was for it. Boston officials coveted the tax revenue the city would gain from the factories in Hyde Park despite the town's $10 million debt. The election was held on November 7, 1911, and the annexation measure passed in both towns. When Hyde Park officially joined Boston on January 1, 1912, Boston was a city completely transformed in the preceding half-century. From a tiny peninsula of just 600 acres, Boston had grown almost a hundredfold by creating new land and annexing its neighbors to over 57,000 acres. Its population had more than tripled, from 190,000 to about 680,000. Still, the question of annexation never got this far again. In 1912, Representative Daniel Kiley took a slightly scaled-back version of Honey Fitz's Boston 1915 plan before the legislature. The New York Times reported that his bill provides outright for the merging of all cities and towns coming within a 10-mile radius of the statehouse into a new city with an estimated population of 1.5 million. The bill would add to the present city the cities of Cambridge, Chelsea, Everett, Lynn, Malden, Medford, Melrose, Newton, Quincy, Somerville, Waltham, and Woburn, and the towns of Arlington, Belmont, Braintree, Brookline, Canton, Dedham, Hingham, Hull, Lexington, Milton, Nahant, Needham, Revere, Saugus, Stoneham, Wakefield, Wellesley, Weymouth, Winchester, and Winthrop. Needless to say, that bill failed. It would be the last time annexation was seriously considered by the city of Boston, but the idea rears its head from time to time. In 1991, the city of Chelsea went bankrupt, closing its schools and cutting police and fire services. Despite nearly $10 million of municipal debt, voters would not approve a tax increase to meet the shortfall. It was the first time since the Great Depression that a Massachusetts municipality had gone bankrupt, and there was a short period where nobody knew what the next step would be for the town. On September 12th, the New York Times reported, Earlier this week, Boston's mayor, Raymond L. Flynn, offered to annex Chelsea if its residents wanted to join its vastly larger neighbor. 
Boston's leaders had previously expressed opposition to taking over Chelsea and inheriting its fiscal and political troubles. Luckily, the state appointed a receiver to turn Chelsea around before Boston had to make good on Ray Flynn's promise. These days, interest in the topic of annexation seems to be restricted to real estate developers trying to make a quick buck and city planning nerds who make the same argument that's been widely rejected since the 1870s, that having one municipal government for the metropolitan area would make everything from public transit to snow removal simpler. The first of these two groups was on display in 2007, when a developer bought what used to be a giant stop-and-shop warehouse that straddled the town line between Dedham and Hyde Park. The developer planned to build almost 1,900 single-family homes on the site, but was stymied by lack of interest from Dedham. The only road in or out of the former warehouse site led into Boston. There was no access from the Dedham side. Dedham was not interested in building a new road or investing in running public utilities to it. The politically connected developers proposed a measure to annex the roughly 100-acre site into Boston, a move similar to how Harrison Gray Otis originally got Dorchester Heights annexed to Boston so that he could build a neighborhood on it. In this case, though, the proposal died before it came to a vote before the full legislature, much less going on to a ballot in Dedham and Boston. The city planning nerds still make an appearance from time to time, often in comments about local or regional planning proposals reported on by the news site Universal Hub. Sometimes they take a page directly from Honey Fitz Fitzgerald's Boston 1915 plan, as was the case in an article published in Boston Magazine in 2013. Under the headline, Annex Brookline, it announced a plan to promote growth, expand our horizons, vanquish our neighbors, and restore our rightful place as the hub of the universe. The author proposed annexing Brookline, Cambridge, Chelsea, Everett, Malden, Quincy, Somerville, Arlington, Medford, Belmont, Watertown, and Milton, saying that it would result in a Boston with a pleasingly rotund shape and a population exceeding one and a quarter million people, displacing Dallas as the ninth largest U.S. city. The article was meant to be tongue-in-cheek, And luckily, it seems that nobody in a position of power read it or took it seriously. We haven't heard much about annexing everything inside of 128 since then. Next up, let's take a look at one of the oldest laws that's still on the books in Massachusetts. Since the 1650s, towns in our Commonwealth have had a responsibility to mark and measure their boundaries every few years. Despite advances in technology, this practice meant that someone had to go out and perambulate the bounds of the city, or walk the town lines, for about 330 years. Does that sound fun? I think it has been a pretty good time for many generations of selectmen and city councilors. So why did Boston stop perambulating its bounds? A box of pictures from the city archives shows two well-dressed men in derby hats. In each photo, they pose with a cut granite stone, sometimes touching it with their hands or a staff and sometimes leaning against it and staring off into the middle distance. In some, they're perched atop snowbanks or down in ditches. In others, they're standing among railroad tracks, looking disapprovingly at a stone that's all but buried out of sight under the railroad grade. The year is 1896, and the men are a committee appointed by the Boston City Council. The stones they're posing with are Boston's boundary stones, 
which are required by state law, which says that towns shall erect permanent stone monuments at every angle of their respective boundary lines, well set in the ground, at least four feet high from its surface, and have the initial letters of the respective names of such towns legibly cut thereon. These men are carrying out the ancient tradition of perambulating the bounds, in which the selectmen or city council choose a group to walk the town lines, locating and marking each boundary stone. That tradition can be traced back at least as far as 1651 in New England, when Massachusetts Bay Colony adopted an act respecting bounds of town lands. For as much as the bounds of towns and of the lands of particular persons are carefully to be maintained, and not without great danger to be removed by any, which notwithstanding by deficiency and decay of marks may yet unawares be done, whereby great jealousies of persons, troubles in towns, and encumbrances in courts do often arise, which by due care and means might be prevented. It is therefore ordered by this court and by the authority thereof, that every town shall set out their bounds within twelve months after their bounds are granted, and that when their grounds are once set out, once in three years, three or more persons of a town, appointed by the selectmen, shall appoint with the adjacent towns to go the bounds betwixt their said towns and renew their marks, which marks shall be a great heap of stones, or a trench of six feet long, and two feet broad, the most ancient town to give notice of the time and place of the meeting for this perambulation, which time shall be in the first or second month, upon pain of five pounds for every town that shall neglect the same. Over time, that standard would evolve to require perambulation every five years, and boundary stones instead of trenches or heaps of stones. A system of meets and bounds similar to modern surveying was also used, so a town boundary would extend 400 feet northwest from Mr. Allen's stone wall to a large oak tree, then turn due north for 250 feet to a brook. However, the older system of perambulation was kept to imbue town borders and property lines with a sense of ritual. Yale historian Allegra de Bonaventura notes, New Englanders utilized the old performance to support and inform what became a new and, by contemporary standards, modern and quantitative property regime. That first year, town records for Boston note, 24th of the ninth month, 1651. Mr. Davis, Peter Oliver, Edward Devotion, and Henry Stevens are chosen to go the bounds of the town betwixt Cambridge, Braintree, Dedham, and that way. Bonaventura notes the importance of creating formal boundaries of towns and farms in the minds of early English colonists. Ordinary New Englanders compelled this legal and symbolic transformation from wilderness to property, not simply by writing it into statutes or deeds, cleaning it before magistrates at court, or even in idle musings over a rum or a neighbor's fence. They enacted the change, scoring it deeply into trees and stumps, heaving it onto mounds of native stones, and, of course, by stamping out its lines with the soles of their feet. The practice of perambulation spread to New Hampshire and Connecticut, but as far as we can tell, no other state or colony in North America adopted the practice and 1651 may have marked the first official perambulation in Boston, but the tradition has much older roots in Old England. Dating back to the late Middle Ages, churches maintained a tradition called beating the bounds, where parties from each church would walk the perimeter of their parish. 
The term beating the bounds likely comes from the practice of whacking the cornerstones or posts with a branch to verify that it would stand for another year. However, some accounts say that young boys were whipped or beaten at each corner mark. This would impress the location into their memories, and the memory of parish bounds would last as long as possible. Even as far back as the 10th century, the laws of Anglo-Saxon King Ethelston mention the practice, which is thought to have originated with a Roman festival called Terminalia, celebrated in February in honor of the god of landmarks. Back when Boston was a tiny village on the Shawmut Peninsula, perambulating the bounds was probably pretty easy. But as the town grew over the years, the job got bigger. Can you name all the towns that Boston shares a land boundary with today? Today the bordering towns are Winthrop, Revere, Everett, Somerville, Brookline, Milton, Dedham, and Newton. Back in 1896, Boston had a boundary with the independent town of Hyde Park, which wasn't annexed until 1912. And of course, that doesn't count towns like Quincy or Watertown that border us only by water. Despite the growing size of the town and the increasing amount of walking involved, perambulating the bounds seems to have turned into a fairly festive affair over the years. In 1765, the selectmen of Boston resolved, Whereas this year is the time appointed by law for perambulating the bounds betwixt town and town, it was therefore agreed upon and ordered by the selectmen that Tuesday the 15th of this instant October be the time for running the line and renewing the bound marks. The committee included Samuel Sewell and John Hancock. They were both selectmen of Boston, and both men of considerable means. They could have easily chosen somebody else to walk the line, but they didn't. The fact that the committee met with their counterparts from Roxbury at 10 in the morning in a tavern on Boston Neck may have had something to do with it. I get the distinct impression that the committee members passed a bottle during the quinquennial perambulation for many generations. If so, they were carrying on a tradition that dates back to the times of King Henry VIII, when Richard Banks complained in his 1530 Epistles and Gospels that beating the bounds had turned into one giant party, saying, These solemn and accustomable processions and supplications be now grown into a rightful and detestable abuse. Some accounts even say that the practice of repainting the boundary stones with red paint gave rise to the phrase, painting the town red, due to the heavy drinking and revelry involved. But we can't find a reliable source for that. Perambulating the bounds makes less sense in an era with modern surveying techniques, aerial photography, GPS, and drones. However, the law requiring perambulation of the bounds is still on the books. In 2017, the law reads, the boundary markers of every town shall be located, the marks thereon renewed, and the year located marked upon the face thereof which bears the letter of the town locating its boundary, once every five years, by at least two of the selectmen of the town, or by every two substitutes designated by them in writing. The marking shall be made with a paint or other suitable marking material. The proceedings shall be recorded with the town clerk and the board of selectmen of the town in writing, signed under penalty of perjury setting forth which boundary marks were located, and those which were not located. A copy of such records shall also be sent, by registered letter, to the town clerk and the board selectmen of any contiguous town. A selectman who refuses or neglects to perform any duty required of him by the two preceding sections shall forfeit $20. In 
It was easy to find information on the earliest perambulations, but modern history was a lot harder to figure out. It seems like a lot of city councilors in recent years have been willing to run the risk of that $20 fine. With a little help from the city archives, we found the 1976 order to walk the bounds. That two members of the city council, the city clerk, and the division engineer of the engineering division of the public works department, or their duly appointed substitutes, be, and hereby are, appointed on behalf of the city council to perambulate the boundary lines and to examine the bound marks between Boston and the adjacent cities and towns of Revere, Everett, Somerville, Newton, Brookline, Dedham, Milton, and Winthrop. To report descriptions of the same and to cause bound marks to be erected or removed wherever necessary, the expense incurred under authority of this order, if any, to be charged to the city council appropriation for transportation of persons. That wasn't the last perambulation, though. Five years later, Boston perambulated its bounds for the last time. In December of 1981, the city council formed a committee of two councillors, the city clerk, and two city engineers. Over the course of two winter days, they met with representatives of the surrounding towns and formally walked the town lines for what would prove to be the very last time. Not only was it the last perambulation of the bounds, they actually recorded some interesting findings in their official report to the city council. Things got off to a rocky start with the Somerville boundary. Not only were many of the bounds missing or inadequate, the Somerville committee didn't bother to show up. Boston Somerville we failed to make contact with the Somerville Committee, but viewed boundary markers along Caldwell Street, Parker Street, and Crescent Street. None of these meet statutory standards as to the size or markings. We also made an effort to locate the key marker in the Boston and Maine Railroad Yard, but it was covered with snow and ice. We recommend a joint effort with Somerville to re-establish this boundary with satisfactory markers. Things began to look up after that when they moved on to Cambridge. There had been a 32-year gap since the last perambulation, and the committee pointed out a fact that I was never aware of. Although we were advised that Boston has not met with Cambridge since 1949, there is in fact a land boundary between the two cities, in the Federal Liquor Complex by the Viaduct near the Gilmore Bridge, caused by an ancient shift in the course of the Charles River. We viewed this entire area. The Boston Territory is essentially occupied at present by the Federal GSA Motor Pool. The boundary is unmarked. If it were to be properly marked, at least three granite markers should be installed after survey. Since there is no tax yield to Boston, and the utility companies have raised objections to servicing the area in its present configuration, we recommend transferring it to Cambridge and restoring the midpoint of the Charles as the boundary. The topography around Gilmore Bridge has changed a lot thanks to the big dig, but it looks like there is still a land boundary between Cambridge and Boston there and possibly in the nearby North Point Park. The boundary definitely wasn't shifted to the midpoint of the Charles. The irregular boundary with Everett is even more notable. We were met in front of the Boston Edison plant by Alderman Davis and Engineer Sullivan. We viewed the boundary line, which passes through the parking lot, divides a house lot, cuts off a piece of an Everett Park, and loops around Broadway at Chemical Lane. This line is improperly marked, there being no indicators in the parking lot, an inadequate one at Dexter Street, and none anywhere else. The committee believes this boundary must be attended to. This is where it gets good. 
The committee believes this boundary must be attended to. If it is to remain as is, we recommend a resurvey and installation of one or several flat rosettes in the parking lot, proper granite markers at Dexter Street and Chemical Lane, and one more where the boundary meets the Mystic River. The committee, however, believes the boundary should be adjusted. It is a throwback to colonial days and appears to result from an ancient ferry whose proprietors arranged to add a piece of the Everett Shore to Boston in order to have both termini in the same town. The present configuration forces Boston to cross the Malden Bridge and plow and clear nearly half a mile of what everyone believes is an Everett City street. The tax yield to Boston is not substantial and is apparently balanced by the cost of the services we provide. We recommend a petition to the general court ceding this salient to Everett, along with half the responsibility for the Malden Bridge, a proposed form of petition is attached to this report. Looking at a modern map, there's a tiny island of Boston on the Everett side of the Mystic River, which is apparently a throwback to a colonial ferry. Perhaps another story for another time, but we haven't turned that land back over to Everett, and we're still plowing it every winter. So it's been 26 years since we stopped perambulating the bounds of Boston, but it's not too late to bring it back. Council President Wu, if you're listening, we are more than happy to serve as your committee for the 2017 perambulation of the bounds. You buy the drinks, and we'll even do it pro bono. Big thanks this week to Marta Crilly, Research and Outreach Archivist for the City of Boston. Marta was very quickly able to determine that the last perambulation took place in 1981, and she dug up the 1981 City Council report for us. Thanks also to Adam Gaffin of the Boston news site Universal Hub. His 2012 article on perambulating the bounds was the first time we'd heard about the practice. To learn more about perambulating the bounds or Boston's history of annexing its neighbors, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 141. We'll have all the links, maps, and images that you need to make sense of both these stories. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and the Stony Brook article, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we'd love to play your message on the show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. It's one of the best ways to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about an incident in 1989 when a disgruntled Vietnam vet and postal worker murdered his wife, stole a small plane, and then flew around shooting up downtown Boston with an AK-47. (laughs) 